I wonder if you made any New Year's resolutions uh, this year. Uh, They seem to be less spoken of these days, don't they? And that shouldn't be a surprise. Because I think people are realising that all of us struggle to refine our lives by simply setting targets or guilt and pressure putting it on us. Stats in The Guardian show, uh, published just a couple of days ago, show that only 36% of the population, uh, well, 36% of the population don't even bother with resolutions. That's down 50% in the last couple of years. But those that do, those that commit themselves to this new regime, this new life, and the top kind of five are, you know, kind of the diets, the, the fitness regimes, uh, the, your appearance and stuff like that, 43% of those who do commit do not even manage to keep going for more than a month. Now, on a deeper level, beyond the fad diets and the fitness regimes, as Christians, many of us will recognize that it is very difficult, isn't it, for us to change life patterns, habits, inclinations, even if we know that they don't please God and honor our Savior. It's especially hard if you're Tool for change, like so many setting resolutions, is the stick of kind of moral guilt. The great Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers once began a sermon saying this. He said, a moralist will be unsuccessful in trying to displace uh, his love of the world by reviewing the ills of the world. Misplaced affections need to be replaced by the far greater power of the affection of the gospel. That's a very uh, famous statement from an even more famous sermon, the expulsive power of a new affection. But in summary, he said this, if you can try to beat yourself up with a stick of moralism, trying to get rid of all the stuff in your life, all the sin in your life, all the rebellion against God in your life, yes, that might work, but for a moment. Because ironically, in part, you're always regret the loss of the sin in your life because you like it it's appealing for a time you'll want to go back even if you know it's a destructive pattern of life see we're attracted to continue because sometimes those sins are quite thrilling and Chalmers shows that to expel them from your life to a significant degree cannot be done by just trying harder by, by trying to stop and just grit and determination, looking elsewhere, suppressing your desires. Now, hear me right. All of those things are good and practical steps that we all need to take when trying to stop a sinful pattern of behavior. But what Chalmers argues again and again and again, particularly from 1 John 2, is that you need a more powerful affection in your life. And namely... Your love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for example, you know, he would say if you're struggling with something like lust, as so many of us do, then, then you need to replace that affection. Not just try and drive it out, though you should do that. You need to replace it with a greater, more powerful affection. Namely that of the Lord Jesus. In other words, yes, we need to hear a stick of warning from God's word and take the practical steps that are necessary. But the stick will have a momentary effect, unless the carrot of a new, more powerful affection replaces that sinful affection that you're trying to expel. Now, 
that is introduction. But what I want us to try and do today is to speak against that kind of very popular noise of moralism. Try harder. Do this. Do that. And point us to the wonderful and glorious good news of the gospel. The more powerful affection that we need to hear. And I pray that what we look at today is something that will draw you to love Jesus more and more and more. I pray that it will be something that will make your affections burn for God. Now I know that that is not very British. But primarily we are citizens of heaven, not Great Britain. So let's work with it if we can. Now what we're going to look at is the last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 20, we've heard them. It is, just in summary, at the end of the apocalyptic vision given by God to John the Apostle. It's an an impression of reality, of eternal life, bought by Jesus Christ's death on the cross and sealed by his resurrection. It is, if you like, the prize carrot of the Christian faith. It's what we have been saved for. It is the final piece of the good news, the gospel. Now, we can try harder. We can discipline ourselves to all degrees. And that may help us to honour what Jesus has done for us for a moment. But we need a greater, a stronger affection, an eternal motivation and desire. And that is what we have here. This year in uh, Commission Churches, we, we've seen our focus is to be on eternity. It is what we have been saved for. And I guess my prayer for us today is that eternity will be the stronger affection as it is secured by Christ. It will bring lasting change to our lives. Now, if you're here to someone today, if you're here today and you're someone who uh, is just investigating Christian things, can I say you're hugely welcome. You may have questions, you may even be very sceptical. I'm thrilled you're here because if you like what you're going to get a glimpse of here, and it just is a glimpse, I'm going to run through these things very quickly in a moment. In a sense it is the icing on the cake. It is the wonderful great hope that Christians have. And it is what defines our living now. So let's look what we've been uh, saved for. You've got a few points on your sheets. The first one says we've been saved for To be in the presence of God. Now, we could stop there. We could close our Bibles. We could walk home. And in a sense, that should astound you. You should walk out and go, wow, that's enough. That we, as people who so frequently turn our backs on God, that we are allowed, because and through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, we're allowed to come into the presence of God for eternity, and actually survive that glory. That is amazing. But here it goes so much further, doesn't it? In Revelation 21, we're pointed forward to a time when we'll stand in the very presence of God, and even goes further, without fear, with great joy, having this ultimate security. Now, I guess if you're sat here, you will know that these verses mean so much to so many, especially if they are hurting, if they're feeling loss and loneliness, fearing for their lives, and rightly so. These verses provide such great comfort. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, then please listen carefully, because 
For the, the eternity you hear of now, that is described as the new creation here in these verses, well, is what you are forgetting. The next few decades of your life and what you are investing in now, are you willing to forgo all of what is being declared here for a bit of fun now as king of your own life without submitting to Christ? See, if you think that now is all there is, then you place your own wisdom above that of the wisdom of God as revealed in his word. And to my mind, that makes you supremely confident of your own future and if you are not then please listen because God longs for you to know of his new creation and the pleasure that it brings to be in his presence I mean look what you'll miss out on and and friends if you're Christians here today look what you've got to look forward to look at verse 1 then I saw a new heaven and a new earth John is showing a very clear turning point here in the book From seeing the vision of the predicament of those without Christ, he now continues, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there's no longer any sea. You see, he's saying there's a new thing going on here. He's not describing a new edition of what we already knew, no, but rather a complete transformation of all things. (coughs) Even heaven will be no longer, but we will recognize things, heaven and earth. For like our bodies, they will be renewed. There is continuity there. As we see in verse 5, we will see likeness from the old, but they will be transformed and perfect. Look at verse 2. Look what is to come. It's amazing. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Yes, the language, it's apocalyptic. Therefore, it is symbolic, but it's no less true. What do we have to look forward to? The holy city is described as the new Jerusalem here. Jerusalem is key to so many events within the Bible and its history. Not least it's where Christ died on the cross, but where our entry to the new creation was won. But its significance here is no less meaningful. The fact that the new Jerusalem ascends as a bride shows that what we have awaiting for us In the new creation. Firstly it is for us. As a bride is. It is made ready with perfect. And loving devotion. And it is beautiful. It is stunning. What awaits us. What does this new Jerusalem offer. It brings us into the eternal. Presence of God. The creator. God will descend from the the new heaven into the new Jerusalem and will declare. We see in verse 3 there, with a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. See, God's presence was known in the temple but now known in our hearts through the Spirit. And that is just a mere foretaste of what we've got to look forward to for eternity. God will live with us forever. He will be with his people, not simply as kind of some removed bystander, but perfectly close. He will be our God. That bond of intimacy that we cannot begin to fathom right now. 
God will be God. Perfectly present in all of his glory. And we will be not be harmed. Rather we see in verse 4. Look at that. It's extraordinary. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more death. No more mourning, crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. In God dwelling with his people. His concern for you. If you are there. Will be perfectly intimate. And eternal. Death is gone. No more crying. No more mourning or pain. We are all dying. We know that. We all face decay. It's why we spend so much money on products for our faces. I hope you can tell. Um, Or, you know, we spend all the money going to the gym as, as we do. But whatever money you have, it cannot stop the inevitable, can it? My uh, bit of a hero of mine, Steve Jobs, as many of you know, he once said this, no one wants to die, and yet death is a destination we all share, and no one has ever escaped it. See, death is what all humanity faces. We know that. We will all die. And, and Jobs is true to a degree, but one has escaped death's hold, and many have followed after him. Having escaped the clutches of death, look at this new creation. Look at what being in the presence of God means, though, for for those of us who have trusted Christ. Death and all that comes before it, the, the progressive decline, the pain and the suffering, all of that is gone. There's a new order. My friends, if you're Christians here today, this is what you've been saved for. To be in the presence of God himself for eternity. And it is the most glorious of hopes. Perhaps I guess our lives, I've been thinking about this week, perhaps are just a bit too easy. A bit too kind of pain free. Too safe. I guess sometimes we just really struggle to, to see the magnitude of this hope. This eternal hope. At the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II, the Russians prepared for the cold and they sat through the winter, underarmed, and fewer in number. But the Germans, despite their manpower and their huge artillery over the winter months, literally froze to death in their boots. It's a well-known story. Do you know what the last request from the German soldiers outside Stalingrad was, was, was sent by, for kind of over the wire? It simply said this, not send us kind of, uh, you know, some more artillery, send us some boots. It simply said this, send us Bibles. You see, despite Hitler's suppression of the Christian church, in the diaries that you read of German soldiers outside Stalingrad, they consoled themselves in their faith. In their pain, they reminded themselves of their new hope, of the new creation where they would be in the very presence of God. Send us Bibles, they said, because they needed to be reminded of their eternal hope when they'd be in the presence of God. Secondly, we need to see, uh, you see on your outlines there, we've been saved to know the provision of God. Look at verse 5 with me, if you can, of chapter 21. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write 
this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost, from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, got to be clear, that in the book of Revelation, it's very rare that God speaks But imagine it. Usually an angel is employed to speak the words of God on his behalf. But to hear his very voice, wow. Can you imagine? I don't know about you. Do you ever play that game where you you watch a film or you listen to a kind of track on on your iPod or whatever. And you, you hear a voice and you kind of envy that voice. Maybe a particular actor. Morgan Freeman, probably my favorite voice of an actor. Love that voice. Booming, strong. You know, or maybe it's... Chris Martin, a Coldplay, or if you're a lady, Adele. Wouldn't you all love that voice? Amazing, wouldn't it be? Can you imagine the voice of God? The power, the authority. And look what he says. I'm making everything new. Those who hear these words and believe will experience that Transformation. Of being made new. A transformation that actually begins when the Spirit enters our hearts as we become Christians by faith in Christ. But it will ultimately be so on that day when we hear the very present voice of God. And God speaks again, doesn't He? Look at the words. He says, It is done. It's an extraordinary little phrase, isn't it? It seems to be pointing to the fact that there's an end point here. Time is done. Eternity is beginning. And his words now reassure. Look at them. I am the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the creator, but he's also the completer of all things. But he's also the provider, as we see here. I will give the water of life. Now we know, because we've been studying the book of Revelation, we did an overview last Yeah, we saw lots of images of water. and Water in the Bible is very often life-giving. That is how it's used. This is the water of salvation here. It will bring eternal life because it is given by the giver of life. The great provider. And notice, please, it is freely given. It's a gift that we do not deserve. An act of grace. Symbolic of the fact, I guess, that all of us, without exception cannot gain eternal life through our own merits. We can only enter this new creation because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. By dying to take on himself the punishment, the justice that my rebellion against God deserves. So take, take this water and drink. Because then you'll be the the one that verse 7 speaks of. As we've been looking through Revelation 2 and 3, many of us will understand this little phrase, the victorious. Look at it there. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Oh, friends, the, the Christian life, I don't think, should ever be seen as an easy ride. Christians suffer throughout the world. Those who are victorious right now are being slaughtered by radical Muslims and radical Buddhists and radical atheists all over the world. But getting through the Christian life in this world, whether persecuted or not, is to be victorious. Whether we face death or just mockery in the office, 
from friends. It is not easy. But the new creation awaits us. Victory is guaranteed. The water of life is ours. Now, of course, there is an alternative. Look down at verse 8. I'm not going to read it, but you can read it. It is written in a tense to say, if you persist in these ways, this will be your fate. It is very sobering, isn't it? So we have been saved for the presence and the provision of God. Thirdly, uh, we've been uh, saved for the glory of God. I'm not going to say much here, but I want us to essentially blow our minds. Look at verse 10 if you can with me. He that is the angel carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Please do read that when you get home. Carry on through. See the absolute glory and brilliance of the new creation and God particularly. Go on to verse 22 though, if you can. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are in its, te- are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb, that's Jesus, is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there, is, there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those who, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I, I guess the question there is to us, is your name in that book? I don't have much to say about this but because of time, but I think I need to say a little. The passage itself speaks so loudly, doesn't it? But if you trust in Jesus' death on the cross for your sin, you will one day be there. Your name is in that book. You'll be able to see this new creation. How? Because of the dazzling glory of God himself. The city of God is lit up by his magnificence and his total purity. Now here's where you get to a point, if you're ever preaching or looking through this, where you have to just look, any illustration you try and make of this will be totally inadequate. So here goes for a totally inadequate illustration about the glory of God. I don't know if you've seen the latest Star Wars film, have you? Anyone? It's pretty awful, but you know, it's a good kind of two hours spent. Um, I've seen it twice now. Pity me. But the central pot, plot basically surrounds itself on this, the baddie planet which has been created. I'm not going into all the names, but the Empire, whatever it's called. They create this planet which takes the rays of the sun and utilises them to burn up lots of other planets. Very exciting. Lots of brilliance. Lots of kind of uh, amazing effects. But even if you were to take a thousand suns, if you were to take a million of those baddie planets that are created into star, in Star Wars, even if you took all the suns, all the brilliance of all the stars in all the known galaxies and beyond, it doesn't compare. It just doesn't compare to the glory of God. And yet that is what we have been saved for. 
to know and to enjoy that incomparable glory. Fourthly, we've been saved for the eternity of God. Here's where we get to that wonderful end. Let's turn to chapter 22, just those opening verses of chapter 22. Look at verse 5. We know this to be true already, but the longevity, which is kind of spelt out here, is really helpful. There'll be no more night, no need for the light of a lamp or the light of a sun. The Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, you will know all of your, your Bible overview kind of spent last year will be kind of your ears will be pricking up here. You'll, you'll hear the language of Eden here. What we're seeing here, though, is Eden is being restored. What God creates, then what man destroys through sin, is being redeemed, is being brought back to its original state, to its eternal state. The curse of Eden we see in verse 3, that curse lifted. No more darkness, no more shame, just eternal freedom, joy, the light of glory that is coming from God. Of course, that little image of the tree is there. It's littered twice in, in, in the beginning of the Bible and then at the end of the Bible as well. The tree of life, because of course we're at the first Adam in Eden was disobedient at the tree. The second Adam, Jesus, was obedient to die on a tree. 1 Peter 2 tells us he himself bore our sins on his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. The first Adam is disobedient at the tree. The second Adam is obedient at the tree. So what? that we might gather around the tree in the eternal new city of God. So what shall we do? All good writing comes and draws things up to at the end, doesn't it? Making the point clearer, we hope. And God does exactly that as he finishes and completes his revelation to us. He finishes giving us three, if you like, final statements to finish. One gives us purpose, one motivates us, and one calls us to respond. Let's look at them quickly. And you see them on your sheets there. The first is to respond today and worship. Look at verse 9. We're called to worship God. It is our purpose. It is the purpose of this whole book, the whole Bible, and the purpose of the whole eternal new heavens and new earth. I wonder if you will do that in the light of eternity. I wonder if you will respond by giving your lives in worship. Secondly, we are to remember Jesus is coming soon. You see that in verse 7, also in verse 10, and through to verse 16. Look at Jesus in verse 12. He says it there. He's coming soon. It's our motivation. It's the motivation of our whole lives as we wait for the new heavens and the new earth. And every day you should wake up with that question in your mind. Is it today? Is it today? Respond today and worship. Remember Christ is coming soon. And thirdly, receive that free gift. Just uh, the last verses, you see the, the word come a lot, happens a lot in verse 17 to 3 to 19. Come and receive. Come to him and receive that free gift of eternal life that he has brought us 
through his death on the cross. You see, this, my friends, is what Christians, what we, if you're a Christian here today, have been saved for. We've been saved to be in the presence of God, to know his provision eternally, to see and experience the glory of God, and to live with him eternally. My prayer is this. Respond today in lives of devoted worship. Remember that Jesus is coming soon. Receive the free gift of eternal life. And if you do, then you can pray with John the words that he prays in verse 20. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Because when he comes, what a day. What a day. Let's pray as we close. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do want and we do ask that each of us today and for all our days, as we wait for this eternal new heavens and earth, will be moulded by and live in the light of it to come. Lord, we are excited by what you promise. We have a firm and secure hope because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And so help us to respond today, to remember and live knowing that Christ is coming soon and to receive humbly that gift of grace, the eternal life that Jesus has brought us on the cross. So we pray together. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.